Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bottom Line Show live today. Today we have a legend with us in both the music and television business. Hollywood Through the Back Door uncovers the story of an actor-writer-composer, Michael St. John, arriving in Hollywood with no great expectations just to survive. It was a time when artists of color were forced to accept any kind of demeaning role in the business. When not in a class at USC, Michael was found on a film set observing and meeting stars or those who might make it happen for him. So he pulled some outrageous stunts just to get the job or part he wanted, but somehow he managed to garner the respect of some of the most powerful human beings in the entertainment industry. People like Richard Zanuck, Marlon Brando, Hedda Hopper, Betty Davis, Agnes Moorhead, David Weisbart, Mary Pickford, and so many more who held out their hand, giving him the necessary push needed. The back door, well, you're going to hear it straight from Michael himself. He'll be joining us today to tell us what his secrets to success are, how he has been in the entertainment successfully for now, I think it's over 40 years. So we are waiting for him to dial into our studio And it looks like we're having a little difficulty having him get into the studio line here, but we'll have him momentarily. Um, Michael, well, let me see if I can share a little other information about Michael with you. Um, He also has a book that has been published called Game, Sex, Rape, and Rock Hudson. And there's a lot of interesting anecdotes about James Dean and his partner, Michael St. John. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Michael St. John also did work with James Dean. Let's see if we can get Michael here on the the line momentarily. Uh, We have other great legends like Elvis Presley, who also uh, will hear, you know, Michael will unfold some of the things that he did with um, Elvis Presley. And uh, let's see, I think he is... Calling in very shortly. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. We are uh, calls in soon. Any hoozle. Um, let me tell you a little bit about how I met Michael St. John. Um, I met Michael St. John actually in 2015. There is a, an organization that was having a very, a very large, big publicity rollout, and they were paired up with a charity organization. And uh, they were in Hollywood uh, unveiling not only their broadcasting studio, their name is Easy Way Broadcasting Studio that Eric Zuli runs. And it was at that event where Michael actually spoke as one of the keynote speakers. There was a lot of uh, key people that are big in our industry. And we had people like Larry Namer, who is the founder of E! Entertainment Television, who was one of the speakers. And then we had Michael St. John, who was also one of the speakers that evening. 
and uh, and uh, I myself was also one of the speakers at that particular event. Um, let's see, if we don't have Michael join us here, I will promise to have him back again. I'm not sure why. I know he uh, we we had him call in earlier. I am hoping that he will jump in sooner rather than later. And uh, let's see here. So I apologize for the delay. And um, let's see what else I can share with you about Michael St. John. He has um, an extensive, as you can only imagine, over 40 years. He has an incredible um, repertoire of credits to his name. He has, let's see, I Feel Thin Coming On, uh, which, which was a production that he did. And... He has, uh, let's see, I'm hoping we can, Hello, Michael. You're welcome to the Bottom Line Show Live. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. I I thought I was going through a war zone or something. Oh, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) At least we're connected. At least we are connected. Absolutely. So, Michael, let's dive in deep into your secrets to success and uh, tell us a little bit before we jump in. A little bit about where you were born, where you were raised. Do you come from a large or a small family? Well, I was born in Pennsylvania, uh, Hmm. not about nine miles out of Philadelphia, a place called uh, Westchester. But for the first few years of my young life, I I lived in a small place called uh, the Holler, Green Tree Holler. And I Hmm. stayed there for, yeah, and it was about... It comprised of about uh, uh, about 200 people, and they and they were uh, oh, blacks. Wow. Uh, they were uh, uh, Greeks and Italian, and it was so mm. very interesting, you know. And uh, this was in the, the 30s, and you can imagine the atmosphere during that period in our American history, because this was not too far uh, beyond the First World War. Because because I remember as a child some of the old uniforms that our, our soldiers of that time um, wore. And my grandfather was in the First World War. He traveled in, in France and all. He was gassed. And so he was uh, uh, assigned to a, a veteran's hospital not far from the village, from the Holland, you know. So uh, I used to listen to the conversation of those who fought in the First World War and the consternation wow. about war and, 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 and uh, the... the uh, ambivalence of, uh, of, of, of the things that were going on in America at the time as far as uh, civil rights and the concerns of the people. And naturally, the, the depression was, uh, was uh, still uh, riding high, and there people, most of the men were working on, in, 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 on the streets, building roads and bridges and things of that sort, you know, and people were sharing food. I remember that. I couldn't understand what was going on, but it seemed like, seemed like a natural part of, of life. Because as a child, you only 
feel and understand and perceive things that you're actually seeing and observing. Mm-hmm. So it may look mm-hmm. like a dual difference. Then, too, the influence of the church was very important. It was paramount to my existence because there was a, a Catholic church and there was uh, a Baptist church. And uh, there was a nunnery uh, on the opposite side of the village. And we used to see the nuns wearing their black robes. And I thought they were quite mysterious. <laughs> because yeah. at, 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 five, uh, at five years old, you were saying, my God, what an interesting world. But you accepted that because that's what you were surrounded with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the prayers and the concerns of the older people and the dreams of what kind of world they hope eventually that we might be able to live in and exist total freedom. And all those kinds of things meant a lot. And I was exposed to music, and that was the paramount thing of my existence at the time. The music. I remember Ella Fitzgerald singing Tiska the Tasket, and I, that was the first song I remember, you know. And there were other aspects of that period as well. And then silent films were still being shown in Philadelphia. And I remember some of the, the first silent film I saw, they were talking naturally. But I also, they took me to a, a silent film. I was totally impressed, you know. And uh, 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 all those famous people of that era had an influence on my uh, idea of what the outside world of the village was like, you know. But the whole idea of growing up in, in Green Tree Hollow, uh, it um, influenced my dreams of becoming something. Because I, I just didn't, I wasn't in a setting of sedentary. I was a, was a setting of being active, kinetic. And that was paramount to be surrounded in this community uh, of people who had ideas, people who uh, were always exchanging uh, information about what was going out, uh, on beyond the village of Green Tree, you know? And so when we finally moved from that uh, part uh, of Pennsylvania to a even closer, closer uh, town to uh, Philadelphia, although to the big city, was Morton, Pennsylvania, Swarthmore as well. As you know, Swarthmore College was uh, venues that quite, was quite minimal, unrespected. And, uh, uh, and even in Morton, there was, was not a ghetto, but blacks and Italians and Greeks and, and people all lived together side by side. And this was in the, like, uh, 19, say, 40 or something, 1939. And all of those things, wow. you know, and the language was uh, understandable. It wasn't ghetto language. It was intelligent language. And our neighbors wouldn't tolerate anything but good English. So growing up and being influenced by that kind of concept of life itself and uh, the place you live was a good influence on uh, young kids like myself, you know. This is why I get very disturbed when I hear uh, a lot of people you know, from the so-called fourth ghetto now, speaking very poorly and also making excuses for, for to not to uh, achieve and to succeed, you know, because during my time, even though even then, uh, then it's, uh, uh, we were influenced by how the neighbors felt. We spoke poorly or we didn't listen to uh, uh, the elders. We got, you know, we got really chastised quite seriously. And mm-hmm. if you grew up with that kind of uh, respect for your neighbors, for your uh, kids, and, and you could travel and walk around the streets at night and communicate with the, with the community of, of friends and, and, and schoolmates. It makes quite a difference, you know. It was nothing like Compton. It was nothing like that. It's nothing to be proud of, you know, with that kind of that military service of films or television or whatever, you know. 
tyrant and, and master for people to be so in a respectful way and get so excited. There's nothing exciting about ignorance. You know, when you find ignorance, you find you become stale and sedentary and nothing, absolutely nothing moves ahead, you know. And any excuse I that, that nothing I think exciting. Mm-hmm. Nothing exciting well, about ignorance. It's so true. It, it's very true. And this is what I've been influenced all my life. And fortunately, I had teachers. I had neighbors who cared. I had ministers who cared, both white and black people, you know. And it proved something to me then that if your brain, use it, you know, and stop making excuses where you can't do this, you can't do that because, because of what? You know, yes, you have difficulty. When you wake up in the morning, you have, uh, you have, there's, there's always something waiting for, a challenge for you to exist in. Mm-hmm. If you don't take up the challenge and look at something with a bright light, always see the light ahead. That's what my teachers told me, Rosal Watson in my fifth grade. She said, so of course there's going to be darkness too. I just come out of the darkness into the light. And what happens when you discover light, click and grow and manifest into something extremely exciting? But you've got to reach for it, you know. You can't find an excuse to say, I can't do this because of this and that. And that. Of course, we all have challenges, you know. Everybody we does. have a challenge to eat properly and to get a proper diet so that we won't get fat or out of sorts as far as mm-hmm. our presence is concerned. You know, there's so many reasons why, uh, you know, I, I can't accept uh, excuses for failure. I cannot. And that's very relative. Failure and success is relative, you know. Some people reach for the stars and they reach them, but some people have a certain uh, extent to, uh, to reach in the future for success. And, and it's reasonable and it's logical. And they get there and they can settle down and be happy. That's terribly important. Some people dream of becoming a singer in their, in their chorus, in their schools, or, and go, and, or go to a certain college. And they go there, they become teachers, or, or, and they achieve a certain level of success as far as they're concerned, and they're happy. Mm-hmm. Happiness is relative. We all don't have to go to the moon to be happy. Because most of the people, most of us who got there, the hell to do once we got there. You know, we look around and search for something, you know, that uh, find uh, uh, that is palatable for us. Sorry, there. So, so it's, yes, yes. So it sounds like um, irrespective, you know, you pretty much grew up in a very cosmopolitan, blended type of community where you had, like you said, Greeks, Italians, basically white and black and multi-ethnic diversity in your community. And there wasn't any kind of stereotypical, um, you know, difference in language or uh, in terms of acceptance. It sounds like your teachers, your neighbors, your even the preachers, uh, yeah. People that are in positions of authority, you know, because you were a child growing well, up there, they all embraced you. Period. Well, yeah, there were different languages, but that's that's an asset because you mm-hmm. want to learn mm-hmm. the language of the neighbors, so you can talk with and communicate with them. Let them know that you could, uh, you know, understand what they're saying. The Italians and the mm-hmm. Greeks and and the other people came after the Second World War. A lot of the German uh, people came into the town, and we adopted mm-hmm. uh, a little German boy, you know. Klaus Lang, I remember, for he was uh, uh, he came over and stayed with us for a year in our town. Our town adopted him, and we, we of course, I was fascinated by Germans and of the stories and things of that sort. And, and of course, I know uh, knew about the Holocaust and I knew about so many things. And I was so happy that I was aware of that kind of evil in the world, you know. And uh, but when we met the young German kids who came over, that kid who his thoughts was about. Hmm, I was 12 years old, 12, 13 years old, 
we had a marvelous time in conversation, but a serious one. And uh, he, well, I think it was one of Hitler's children being programmed for that kind of thinking. But he was unwillingly accepted. But this is how they had to survive. And we learned to respect what they had to go through, too, uh, because they were young and they had no power and uh, lots of things, you know. Then I had a few of my relatives were killed in the Second World War. And so, uh, you know, I had a lot of things, a lot of questions. But we were able to talk with each other and to understand what kind of leadership, the kind of uh, thing that made life palpable, if only we uh, uh, got together as a, as a group and fought against the, the, the things that weren't necessarily uh, healthy for our society, worldwide as far, and, 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 and communicable community as wise as well. You know, so we, there was there were many things to learn, so many things that it uh, carried me through until this very moment, you know. And sometimes I lie in bed and I think about those years and the people I met and when I was exposed to because of Philadelphia being so close by. Because I was able to listen to uh go become and meet Paul Robinson, as you know, was a great fighter mm-hmm. for freedom. Uh, Mary Anderson, Roland Hayes, you know. Winston Churchill came for a visit one time. Uh, 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 Mrs. Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, when in high school, when I was just working in high school, once uh, a month we had a United Nations type of uh, organization with all the young people gathered, and we had the mock United Nations. And Eleanor Roosevelt came and met us and gave a speech, and we talked with My her. Goodness. And when I was at when I was at USC years later, I reminded her because she came and spoke, and she said. Well, I remember uh, Philadelphia, of course, where you wanted the young people who spoke so eloquently about freedom and war and things. I said, I hope. Yeah, I think I must have been. She laughed. She says, you made a difference in my life as well, my son. You know? And I've never, never gotten that kind of uh, wow. communication. You know? I was terribly lucky, terribly lucky, you know. Wow. And, so and you... because of the war, more, being so close to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. we were exposed to so many great people, the Duke of, of, of uh, um, uh, of, of, of England, the Duke, something of the, had something to do with the church. I forget his, his title. But he spoke to us, you know, and uh, young people. And uh, I was so influenced by world figures because of Philadelphia, living so close to Philadelphia. It influenced my whole thinking and opened my mind up to, to the realities of the world and the needs and, of course, freedom, which was paramount mm-hmm. to me and so many of my uh, uh, schoolmates who were just as uh, uh, involved in, in those concerns as well at that time. That's amazing. So, I mean, I didn't realize that you had, uh, I know that you were in, worked closely side by side with a lot of the greats in both music, television, and film, but I didn't also, uh, I had no awareness that you had also met with Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, that's really uh, amazing. I'm sure you've had the opportunity to m- meet other um, politicians and uh, even potentially presidents of countries. Uh, you know, what was that like? Well, I tell you, I met uh, Harry Truman. I was asked to uh, to be one of the young singers to uh, to Arlington to sing in Arlington Cemetery and to meet the president. And uh, uh, which I uh, we I, that was one of the performances, which was quite exciting. Uh, 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 the vice president of that during that period was under uh, Harry Truman. Uh, I forget his name, but he he met us as well, and then he introduced us to the president. That was quite a uh, quite a session in Washington as a youngster, 
and uh, I sang for President Eisenhower with Marilyn Poland. Uh, she, you know, she eventually she became the diva of the Metropolitan Opera, and we appeared in Carmen Jones together. I was one of the featured actors in that first great uh, all-black musical, Carmen Jones, and uh, Marilyn Horn or Jackie. She did the voice of Dorothy Dandridge, and I did the, mm-hmm. uh, a key role of Kiss of uh, of uh, T-Bone. And at my at that time, I. My professional name was Sandy Lewis because most of that time we were taking names like Mickey Rooney, you know, Rock This or Tab This, mm-hmm. and, and they gave me the name of Sandy Lewis at T-Bone. And that was quite a tribute. And then, too, Jackie and I were at USC together, so, uh, and they asked me and, and, and asked Jackie to perform at the Hollywood Bowl. And I remember singing for first night our meeting and afterwards, and that was terribly exciting. I was, you know, and wow. he was so nice and so warm, et cetera. Then I met Shasta, I sang for Shostovich, you know, uh, 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 the Russian composer. He came to visit this country and ended up at USC again. I was asked to sing, and Jackie was asked to perform for um, Dmitry Shostovich, uh, Shostakovich, and that was quite good. Then Stravinsky met him, and, and uh, uh, DeMille, uh, Papa DeMille, or Papa DeMille, was the head of the drama department at USC at the time, but Cecil DeMille, not his brother. I was going to say, is that related to Cecil DeMille? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Papa DeMille, Bill DeMille, DeMille uh, was the head of the drama department at USC. And that was wow. exciting because when, when uh, Cecil DeMille produced Tinker Mammoth, guess where he came? He showed the film. So, and, 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 uh, I showed it in, in, in the, the Bernard Auditorium on campus, and he saw the film before everybody else. It was quite exciting, that period. You know, how could I not I be affected by all of this, Lillian? Really? You know, uh, yeah, the, this it's little impossible black, not to This be. little black boy, no, just face it, this little black boy being exposed to all of this, especially during that period when the, the world was really half divided and they were trying to keep... I mean, I know how lucky and fortunate I have been. So I have no excuse not to try to achieve and keep on going until I drop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No excuse. Absolutely. You've been very blessed, and you. And I think it's funny. I think gratitude and appreciation, and not taking those things for granted, and just being in that, you know, bubble, if you will, of appreciation and gratitude yes. for what has been, just seems to magnetize and bring more of it. Uh, uh, pardon me. It seems to magnetize and bring more of it. It seems to attract oh, more yeah. of it when you're in that oh, in yeah. that space of a, appreciation. You're not taking for granted or you don't have a sense of entitlement. Oh, I should have gotten, you know, I worked hard. No, you're in that place of appreciation and gratitude. Yeah. And I think, you yeah. know, I would imagine that's probably one of your keys to your secrets to success over the last four or five decades that you've been in, you know, the music and film and TV business. Yes, because I, because I, even though I got slapped down like I've heard many people many times, but I didn't rest on it. I didn't swallow up all, you know, this and the anger and things like that. I, of course, I was hurt the first day because nobody, well, no one wants to be re, uh, rejected. But the next morning, I got my, my, my derriere up and I said, okay, kid, what do you have to do next? Get on the phone or, get on, or write a letter or talk to someone or whatever and to see if it can change the complexion of the situation. And that's what happened. I it never failed. Sometimes uh, it took a little longer, a month or six mm-hmm. months, whatever, but I knew the route to take, and I believed in what I could do, and I had so many people who would push me on. Okay, Mike, you can do this, and uh, try this, et cetera. And I needed, I needed help. I was never uh, too uh, 
I you know too uh, proud to not to ask for help. If I needed help, I got help. You know. Wow. And uh, Mary Mary Pickford, uh, you know, the first lady of the screen with Sam Golden and and uh, on, uh, all those people who started the business here in Hollywood. Uh, I was introduced to her, and she took me on to produce one of her charity fashion shows, and I. Uh, I I got to pick fair and got to know Miss Pickford and uh, I got to know her very well and because uh, her poor shortcomings and the problems I was became a part of and I learned and she introduced me to some of the the fantastic people of the industry you know it was quite exciting to be a part of of, of that uh, Hollywood uh, world uh, history really it was exciting and uh, I was always included and she says that uh, I, I want you to call. Uh, you know, uh, Louis Mayer or some other person. Oh you know, I would get on the phone and I would just do it. You know, Studio all head. these people. Yeah, you know. And wow. uh, and uh, top. I, it was, it was, I did Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Jane Russell. I mean, and I got to the point where they were just like neighbors or classmates, <laughs> you know, because I was dealing with the creme de la creme every day mm-hmm. of my life, you know, and then it became quite normal because of what Miss Pippard wanted she got because she was the grand dame of the industry and one of the founders, you know, you know, mm-hmm. and I became her, like, her a, a second thought that she could trust me, you know, because I asked her, why, why do you want me around so much? Because she says, I know you'll get things done. But I was learning from her. I watched her technique. Mm-hmm. I learned how she followed through, you know, and she didn't hesitate to speak her mind and be blunt sometimes, but this is how you survive. Sometimes truth and facing reality hits hard is difficult to swallow. But that's life itself, you learn. You go with the punches. It's extraordinary how you survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't matter who was, uh, you know, what the politics were doing. It didn't matter what the mix of people were. Because people respond in predictable exactly. ways. So, you know, those, again, those success principles stand this test of time. It was good when you were coming into the business and has saw, seen you throughout your entire lifetime and career. Yes, absolutely. And there was always someone there saying, hey, kid, why don't you try this? Or, I'll, I, didn't, I very seldom had to audition for things, I'll be honest with you, because there was always somebody saying, I know somebody who can play this role, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I was just lucky that way. People said, you know, because at that time, not to be black, a young people had the nerve or guts enough to, to do something like I was doing. But they would have mm-hmm. to find some excuse. But I didn't find an excuse because growing outside of Philadelphia where you had to move or you froze to death because of the weather, you had to keep yourself moving ahead, thinking ahead just to keep warm as far as your dreams and your physicality, et cetera, et cetera. You just had to do it. It was part of survival, you know. So I, I, mean, I, got, you know, I got to know, you know, they had the water, so I did remember the wedding list, which was quite an experience. And she enjoyed me because I was quite different from many of the other kids, the black kids, the young actors mm-hmm. that she had met earlier, you know. And uh, we had our battles, but we, can't, we, became, we became very close friends, and, and she was very protective of me, you know. She said, mm-hmm. your mouth is going to get you in a lot of trouble one day. I said, your mouth is too. <laughs> <laughs> or make you a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> she funny. called me a little snip. You know, I said, well, oh my I, you know, I'm just telling you how it is, our, our mom. So she insisted that I called her. She insisted, insisted on my calling her mom. So I called her mom. Oh. You know, we had a ball. And we, I sit in her, her bedroom in Pasadena. She had a house there and some servants who were all Caucasian. 
and she left and mm-hmm. came up to her bedroom and had a big bed. I had to sit on the bed and she would stories about the old days and warn me about the pitfalls wow. of, of survival as an actor and a musician, et cetera. And I used to, we have a ball, you know, and I used to just raise hell with her sometimes. And she liked my, she said, why are you so sassy? I said, because I, I want to know. I'm not going to hold back, uh, Mom. You know, and she laughed. She said, I don't know what I'm going to do with you, boy. I don't understand what I'm going to do with you. That mouth of yours. Wish, I said, well, said, God gave me the mouth, and you're trying to keep it exercised. <laughs> so she was she was your first mentor, but she really embraced you um, wholeheartedly, oh, it sounds like, really took you under her wing, and she allowed you to be the full expression of yourself oh, and encouraged you because you had a sassy mouth. Yes, it's like, okay, let's not squelch that. We can use that some way somehow. Yes. Because the first time she saw me was at the Evans Showcase Theater. It was run and owned by Nick Stewart, who was lightning on the Amos and Andy show. And, and Nick, while at USC, got me a, a part in Amos and Andy. I played a little role from England called Richard. And so she came and I met her then. And then she heard that I, uh, that her friend David, uh, David Wayne was uh, opening up here in Finian's Rainbow. And I auditioned for this show and I appeared in the show. But in the show, I got an opening night. <clears throat> oh, gosh, Lillian, I shouldn't tell you this, but it's true. I was dancing mm-hmm. as one of the, the characters in the gospel ear, and I, for, I forgot to put on my underwear, and I, and I didn't zip my trousers, and uh, they said that the, the, the scene had never gotten applause and laughter before, and when I came on, the whole world, I was exposed to the whole world, and the audience oh applauded and laughed and, 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 and everything, and and uh, Mom or Ethel Waters was sitting in the first row of the uh, Coconut Grove Ambassador, and, and she almost fainted, you know. And I caught hell. Then after the the, uh, the opening, we had a big party, you know, one of those things in the theater. And my Mom or Ethel came up, Miss Waters came up, and to me, and she said, "I know what you did." I said, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "You unzipped yourself to get that kind of reaction from the audience." I said, "No, no." I explained to her. She said. Honey, I know show business. She says, don't be lying to me. Then she left. She says, I'm going to do Ping and Rainbow, and I'd like you to play my half-brother, who always co-stars me. And there's one thing mm-hmm. I demand, for you not to forget that I'm the star and not you. And don't try any one of the cheap tricks that you just pulled this evening. I said, it wasn't a trick. She said, shut up. Just call me tomorrow. She'll give me a number, and we'll talk oh, about the show. The play. And that was a member of the wedding. So I went. And we had a time, I'll tell you, it's in my book, the thing that happened between uh, Ethel Waters and I, uh, she, uh, she and I had a battle on stage. She threw a chair at me, I threw it back at her. And the audience who saw the show on Broadway, they went into it. They were frozen to their seats in Pasadena. It was quite a thing, I'll tell you, uh, you know. But we became very, very close because then she decided to faint on Facebook, but I decided to faint before she did. <laughs> so she she was absolutely exasperated. It was something else, you know. Then a lot of people from Hollywood, uh, Peter Ford and Glenn Ford and, and Slavio and Mitch Gaynor, and so many people came to see the show. They said, this show is quite different from in New York. It's hilarious. We love the changes, Miss Waters. She was furious that the changes were because was because of my antics with her on stage. You know, it was quite a thing. It was quite an experience. Things I had with stars, and 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 frankly, in in the retrospect, I would never do those things today. But being young and ambitious, Lillian, and determined to show your wares, let the world know that you were there or that you had arrived. 
you know, at that time I was desperate because I had gone through so much to get to Hollywood, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I had graduated from high school, from high school got into, went to the Midwest at Fairlawn College in Indiana, and uh, mm-hmm. I was, became the first black president of my class. And during the homecoming parade, we were marching down Market Street, and the KKK members uh, uh, stormed uh, the parade and threw uh, produce bottles and, and, and had big uh, baseball bats. And, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, and my classmates saved my life and took me back to the campus. And the dean yeah. uh, hid me in the closet of his house on campus because he was living on campus. And the next morning, they made arrangements very quickly to get me to UFT. And so about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, they put me in a truck, a back of uh, the campus truck, and uh, took me to the Greyhound bus and uh, got me to Los Angeles. That's how I got to Los Angeles. And That's UFT. why you went to Yeah, I, I read that your dormitory, your dorm room, was firebombed. Dorm was firebombed, yes. That's the reason why they, they did that. They quickly got me out of town. So I'll, because I'll be honest with you, I had no idea of coming to Hollywood. I didn't see any reason why I should not go to Hollywood. Because so, I was headed so it was, it's interesting. So part of your original plan was not to come to L.A. It was to go to school there in Earlham College in Indiana. But obviously God right. had a bigger plan from you, so he literally fired you out of Indiana and yes. got you to L.A. You didn't even know that you were going to L.A. They, they, they quote, unquote, took you to L.A. And this is, again, one of the secrets to success that I want to interject here because we see this time and time again with our guests who have come on. Sometimes our greatest challenges are our greatest blessings because heaven knows you would never have wished on yourself to have been a target to the KKK or to have your dorm firebombed. You know, you were were going to school and, you you know, you were going to do what you were going to do, but God had a different plan, so he literally fired you out of there. Now you end up yes. in L.A. So tell me, how did you, what was the first, what was the thing that um, connected you with entertainment at that point? Because you're brand new to L.A. You're literally yes. escorted and dropped off there. Right. Well, uh, my first uh, uh, sight of L.A., I was totally overwhelmed. I saw palm trees. And I expected to see banana trees and orange trees. Oh <laughs> you know, I was a little typical kid. From back east, and I've seen those, you know, I've seen those, you know, pictures of L.A. and books and things like that as a kid. And of course, in, uh, going through high school, and they had radio, they had nothing television in existence. And so, therefore, mm-hmm. I had a different view of, of this town. It was extraordinary. And when I saw my first movie star, I'm a failure, it was Maureen O'Hara. I thought she was the most gorgeous person in the world. There was Maureen O'Hara, you know, then mm-hmm. Ray Milan. You know, and Ray Milan picked me up one day. I was in, walking through Hollywood, and I was coming because I missed the bus or whatever. And uh, she they picked me up, and I mean, it was fantastic. Then being at USC, many of the people, uh, they, they, their relatives or their kids, you know, they stormed the campus of USC. They went to, they came to USC, or USCLA, of course. But with USC, mm-hmm. uh, even more so. And so I got to know some of the parents and some of the kids who were connected directly to the industry. And so, and my being as a singer and, and a folk singer, et cetera, I was constantly being exposed to the, uh, uh, you know, uh, to the, uh, the famous people, famous families uh, who supported the USC in every way uh, possible uh, constantly. So my whole life changed, you know, and then they, then they 
Ryan Auditorium. Actually, at that time, there were offices wow. there and there were concerts there, and they would get a lot of the USC students to do all sorts of things to teach or earn money, which I was constantly doing. And I appeared in the La Cartel de Opera, the San Francisco Opera, was beginning up there, and I auditioned to be a part of the chorus, and I got a chance to be in La Cartel de Opera. And because and I was living right there on campus, about four or five minutes away, you know. So I was exposed suddenly to the world that I'd always heard about, but and, and dreamed of, but slowly getting a taste of. It was exciting. It was extraordinary. It only built my dreams up to be thicker and much more at a uh, level of possibility. Because if they could, if this could happen to other people, why not me? You know, that was my idea. And I, and the thing about it, I didn't constantly say that, but my instincts were always in that direction. You know what I mean? Wow. It just naturally went in that path of, of travel, of that journey. Of, and the light was always there. And I uh, was just all imaginary. I would just go in that direction. And I would take advantage of anything that was handed over to me or was able to be added to it as far as opportunities. So I didn't take it. I didn't think about what belonged to me. I said, well, okay, I'm learning this much. It's like a master's a master's class survival. And I was watching other wow. people. I was listening to other people. It's very important. Like my one teacher says to me, Rosa Watson was this great. She said, you had better learn to listen. That's when you learn. And so that was always constant in my thinking, in my thoughts. You know, okay, I, I didn't go up and grow up in this atmosphere. I better watch, stay quiet, keep my big mouth, big mouth quiet, and just listen and really learn. And then use what I listen to that's really powerful as really something extraordinarily interesting and see it put it to use. That's how it will work on my end as well. And that's how you do for everything, whether it's music or writing or sitting in a class observing what other students who are brilliant, how they handle themselves so possibly you the edge of what they have next to your being as well. It's important. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things that... Um that uh, that I'm hearing about what you're saying and also that I've read a little bit about you is that um, you had this inner drive and this passion that no matter what, you were going to get somehow inside um, and be noticed by doing sometimes outlandish things. And, you know, if, you, if you're waiting all the time, it sounds like you didn't wait. You decided no. that you wanted, you knew what you wanted, and you decided that, you, you know, you may have not known how, but you were going to do whatever was necessary, including breaking the rules, to get noticed <laughs> and to get in front of those people so that you were noticed and you'd be able to at least, you know, be on their radar. So yes. tell us a little bit about more about that. And if you maybe share an incident or two of some of the things that you did that, you know, I would imagine were considered to be brash at the time. Well, uh, uh, I had met... Um, uh, Hedda Hopper in uh, New York. I had gone to audition for February in Pennsylvania. Uh, my music teacher and Swarthmore insisted that I go. And I went and I auditioned and they liked me very much. They said, asked me if I needed to. I liked uh, George Gershman's music. I said, I love it. I worship that guy, you know. So I said, they said, would you sing one of the songs, which I, I did. And so uh, Alan Craig, who was the music director at that time, for the February Ames Pennsylvania singing group, uh, took, uh, insisted that I stay over a couple of days in New York, and my parents okayed that. My mom did. And he introduced me to, uh, uh, to, to Lula Bankhead. 
and uh, through yeah. Lulu Bank. That, uh, she took a license to me to the point where she all, I was uh, about 12 or 13 years old, and uh, she offered me uh, uh, a drink. She said, what would you like? Uh, I thought she might you know, offer me a, a glass of juice or lemonade or something. Mm-hmm. She said, well, how, what kind of gin do you like? I said, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so Lulu Bank says, darling, she says, what do you want to drink? And, and uh, I, I told I did kind of lemonade pink, whatever, you know. She says, what, lemonade? And this guy, Alan Gray, interrupts and says, oh, he's only about 12 or 13 years old. She says, oh, really, darling? You know, it was hilarious. And then the idea of of uh, meeting, uh, she had a party, a dinner party, and had a was there. And so Helen and I talked. She said, she really come to Hollywood. And I said, oh, my God, Hollywood. You know, she says, don't, don't forget to look me up. And uh, maybe that can help you. I sang for the group of the guests there, and they all were very pleased and excited. And so that was my first meeting her when, when I, once I got to Hollywood, I did uh, connect with her, and she became a, a rather, uh, you know, informing friend, not a close friend, but mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was respect because she was, you know, she's an older woman that by the reputation to be one of the, the grand dames of, of the film industry along with uh, Lola Parsons. And so uh, I... I had heard and read in her column that uh, Carmen Jones, uh, Otto Preminger, was, uh, in, uh, was uh, meeting a lot of, or auditioning a lot of young actors to sing and dance and everything else. And so I didn't have an agent, so, but I, I, I called 20th Century Fox because that's where uh, uh, Mr. Preminger had his office there. And uh, they, I made uh, an appointment. And when I got to 20th Century Fox, uh, Mr. Kermit was sitting in his office. He says, you know, what do you want, though? Do you want to be an actor? Why do you want to be an actor? And I told him, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, as if he was, I had known him for a thousand years. And uh, he says, uh, I said, uh, he said, why are you going to me? I said, because I'm the best darn actor in this town. He looked at me, really? And I said, of course. And he says, read this. He gave me the script. And he was smiled. And and, uh, he says, I like you. Yes, I like you too. And he looked at me even more strangely. You know? <laughs> it looked like boy had a big mouth and he had a lot of footstock, you know. And so uh, he says, I'd like to you. He says, I will call you. And uh, when you're ready to uh, shoot and uh, sign contracts, I said, thank you very much. And so I, I left his office and then they started shooting and I thought he would call me the first day. But he, uh, he didn't call. And so I waited for about three or four days and kept uh, calling uh, his office. And Helen, his secretary, got used to my calling. We became rather decent, uh, you know, connectable friends. And she says, no, Mikey, you know, uh, he uh, he's not uh, auditioning for your role yet. I said, uh, I just don't want to, you know, I just want to know. And, and then we, they changed the venue for shooting the film from 20th Century Fox to RKL, the Hollywood Hughes Theater, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And so uh, when that first day of shooting over there, because uh, Pearl Billy was uh, in rehearsal, Harry Belfonte was there, and Dorothy Dandridge, and, and Nick Stewart, and Brock Peters, and the whole gang. And, and, so all of, you know, the creme de la creme of the black actor family. And I, I decided to go to the studio, and I convinced, you know, the uh, security that I was uh, really uh, part of the whole production, and they let me in. And for, I mean, Aldo Preminger saw me, 
and he looked at two or three times and said, this cannot be true because I was right there on the first day of rehearsal and shooting. And I let him know that I was there by standing in his view so he can see me standing. And I just uh-huh. wouldn't move, you know, and he pretended he didn't see me, you know. And I got to the point where I was irritating him uh-huh. because yeah, he would go to the bathroom. I was there, Lily. He went to the commissary. I was there, Lillian. He would walk wow. around on the lot. Michael Fane was there. Senator John was there. And to, uh, then uh, they would got to the, my role and uh, of T-Bone, and they asked me to change the name. I went along with it, et cetera. And so I, I still didn't get the call from Helen. And so I got very upset, and I went and told Pearlie May. Pearl, I called her Pearlie May, Pearl Bailey. And the situation, she said, don't worry about it, honey. You're going to be fine. And, I, and the, the day before I was scheduled to do my first scene, I still had not gotten a call from Helen. So I went to the studio early in the morning. I waited there all day, and nothing was said to me. He saw me a couple of times, and then uh, he disappeared. Then Dorothy Dandridge disappeared. And then I decided to mm-hmm. confront him. So I went up to his office, and Helen was not at her desk. I saw a light steaming from his office, and the door wasn't completely closed. So I said, okay, I'm going to go in there. So I pushed the door open. I said, Mr. Preminger, and guess what? There he was on the sofa with Dorothy Dandridge having an affair. And then they just, she quickly put her uh, herself together, and, and uh, <clears throat> Mr. Preminger was stuttering his little German. Oh, I, 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 I come, oh, I'm so sorry. I was so in shock. I backed out, almost fell down the stairs, and I ran and told Pearlie May what I had witnessed, and she laughed her head off and said, Honey, don't worry about that part. You got that part. And the next morning I showed up, I was a little bit hesitant because I didn't know what was going to happen. Then I I saw Helen. She beckoned to me. She said, Oh, oh, uh, Mikey, uh, you should go. Come on up. You should come into my office. I was looking for you. I knew you'd be here and sign the contracts to to start the rehearsal for uh, the scene, your first scene. And that's how I Mm -hmm. got the role. But he gave wow. me a rough time on the first day. He said, I didn't sound Negro enough. He made any excuses to make me suffer. Oh, my gosh. It was the most excruciating, and to the point where I just, I thought maybe I'd never do a film again or I'd never want to be an actor again, especially still. And because he, it was so rough, because he was upset that he was forced into signing me, Lillian. And so anything he could think of, he even asked his uh, assistant director, Maximilian Slater, who's from Austria, to teach me how to sound more black. I mean, you can imagine with his coaching how I ended up sounding at times. So a lot of the scenes I was supposed to shoot was cut from the film. So I had a, wow. uh, a, a, a couple of major scenes, and then I had a couple of scenes dealing with the star. You know, speak, I have a speaking, speaking role, of course, but the major scenes that I really wanted to do and uh, dealing with Doc Peters and, and uh, Carmen, et cetera, uh, he found an excuse to cut from the film. So that's how my debut with the big-time actors uh, began. It was, it, it was something, and I, I was so disheartened. And after the shoot, uh, you know, I said, I'll never do that film again. I was, I was, it, was, it was painful. It was excruciating because oh, I had caught him in that situation. And he wanted to convince, he wanted to show me who was the king, who was the boss, et cetera. I learned, you know, from, something from that as well, and I kept on going. But then I got, you know, hired and signed for other things as well. But when I did uh, uh, Porgy and Bess, he refused to hire me as one of the characters, but he hired me as one of the singers, uh, voices for the music, and, you know, and Porgy and Bess. 
because he knew I loved uh, George Gershwin, and then I had met uh, Ira Gershwin on on the lot, and that really uh, uh, was my support, one of my great supporters. He told uh, Otto Preminger, who uh, was assigned after the first uh, director who had directed the, the first talking best on Broadway, he says, you, you take this kid. He's wonderful. He said, George would have been very proud, you know. So it, it was something extraordinary. Now, I was lucky to have, to have met people earlier or be influenced because I, there's so many things uh, I'll tell you, Lillian, that I'm very, it's an extraordinary lucky concerning my career in meeting people who remembers me and stood up for me when I needed it most, you know. Well, and it also sounds to me like you were flexible because, you know, all the same you would you would either sometimes be a, a dancer, other times you were a singer, other times you were an actor, and it sounded like the passion that you had inside you um, gave you the confidence to fully put yourself out there and believe that you should be the person that they should pick for this part and you wouldn't waver. Uh, you know, as you mentioned to you, you, the casting director, it's like, you know, the reason why they should hire you, hire you as an actor is because you're the best darn actor in town for this part. And interestingly enough, you got the part. You know, that obviously amused him. He tried you out, and he's like, I'll be darned. You know, the guy can act. And so that flexibility and that your passion and your confidence all contributed to your diverse career where you're able to, you know, everything from – uh, those things that I mentioned to directing, composing, uh, and producing, you know, you're you're not just in a box of just being a dancer or just being a singer or just being right. X, Y, Z. Well, it was terribly uh, important. I realized it quite early that uh, you had not shouldn't depend on just being able to do one thing. You're able, talented enough to do more than one thing, but the writing and and dancing and the singing and the acting and uh, anything else that they that's uh, hireable uh, in uh, in the industry. Otherwise, you 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 would end up heartbroken. And uh, I don't want to, to sit back and wish, feel sad and ang- build up anger and resentment. But I. I, even when I was about, um, about I think, nine or eight, eight or nine years old, there was a contest on radio for anybody to write a story about their life. And I, I, let's face it, Lillian, I had an experience with that. But, but I entered the contest, you know, and uh, sent in my uh, memoir <laughs> at that at eight wow. or nine years old. <laughs> I thought they wasn't you were eight, nine years old? Yes. But you see, oh my gosh. I, it's amazing, and when I think about it, now, then too, a lot of people remind and remind me even today. My sisters and brothers back in New York, they said, "Bro, bro, you were always, you know, carrying around a pencil and a tablet, and you were always making notes." Well, I, I didn't know. Well, I knew I didn't want to forget anything during the day or any experience. I just naturally picked up those things and carried. I even had a dictionary with me at various times. Once I discovered a big dictionary, I just. I, they, I went to bed with that dictionary under my pillow because it opened up wow. a new world for me, a new world language that I kept so happy. Yeah. You see, I grew up, I was raped as a kid when I was six years old. And, uh, oh. and uh, it was terrible. And my father was an alcoholic. He was very cruel. And uh, oh. the violence in our household, he used to do terrible things to my mother. And uh, oh. I was dreaming of just getting ahead and living a different life. Because there's always a holiday. I used to resent holidays. Any holiday, like Thanksgiving, any holiday was an excuse for my father to get drunk and, and brutalize us in the family. 
you know, I, I, it was horrible living, you know, and that, wow. that seemed a part of my existence. But I had read of other life, and it was another life to to find to be happy. And I was always, you know, transferring myself in in that direction. And when I was old enough to leave, I mean, I just I was escaping, and I, that's I think that's one reason why I didn't accept defeat. Now psychologically, I was screwed emotionally, wow. emotionally, because of growing up in horror with guns and blood, and my mother crying, and us fleeing to our neighbors' houses for safety. You know, it was it was something that I had learned to survive with. And I was always dreaming out. When I get older, I would leave. I would do this and that. And when I read about, or my teachers used to tell us uh, uh, stories or relate stories uh, to, uh, to the class or to me personally uh, about the, uh, the achievements of other people who were black, who were Italian, who were Greek, who all had different challenges as well uh, to survive, it influenced me tremendously. And my whole life was just pointed in that direction. That's why being at Erlen College and being hiding in, you know, uh, in the back of a truck to escape it, you know, and then once I got to Hollywood, the challenges appeared, but there were opportunities as well. And the doors opened because the people that I met in, in Los Angeles, the teachers, the professors, the deans, they seemed to somehow adhere to my quest and, uh, and being exposed to music, to classical music and through concerts and, and to some of the greatest people of the world that you only read about in history books or whatever, influenced me terribly. And they opened doors and they didn't say get away or didn't seem that they were bored with me or wanted to shy. And they didn't force me to not be a part. They wanted to prove to me that the door was always open. And I took advantage of it. I didn't think you know, that maybe I was you know, getting too, too close to them or following around when I needed them. I called them. And they, you know, like Miss Pickford. Anytime I need something, I had something. It's Betty Davis. One time I called her and I complained about something. And she says, what is wrong with you? She says, you're a man, aren't you? I said, yes, Miss Davis. You have balls, don't you? I said, yes, Miss Davis. She said, well, use them, damn it. You know, it was extraordinary <laughs> how she, commit- <laughs> she, she communicated with me. Aggie Moorhead. Aggie Moorhead was one of my, my mentors as well. And she did a screen test with me, and, and Betty Davis did too. They all tried to help me, you know. And she took a layout pictures of me, which she thought, found that I had done a few things. She said, you want to do some, a layout with me? I went over to her house uh, in Beverly Hills, and she lived right across the street from Debbie Reynolds, her dear friend, you know. And uh, she did a layout with me in her living room, in her basement, her studio, et cetera. And she was doing Bewitched, you know. And, oh. uh, and, and, and she wanted to do a big uh, a, National layout with me, and and they re- refused to let me let us do it on the uh, the CBS uh, lot. And she said, "I was a star before that. I was a little witch." And so she said, "We'll shoot." She told the cabinet, "We'll shoot at my home." So we they picked up their uh, equipment. We went over to her uh, mansion in Beverly Hills, and we shot over over there. You know, people have gone out their way to help me. You know, and it's extraordinary. So I've been wrote. That was the first uh, you know that kid chose as a script in the script department at CBS, and uh, I was with uh, the shows like with uh, Lionel Barrymore, the doctor, the uh, mayor of the town, with Hackney Moorhead, who was uh, really his maid in the radio show. Uh, of course, uh, 
Lux Radio was on, and with Cecil B. DeMille was the host of that. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, 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 I mean, there's so many. Re- on the, oh, God, my friend Irma, I don't know if you've heard of that show, Marie Wilson, and Meet Millie, and, and The Shadow, and uh, I, I Love a Mystery, all those famous radio shows. I was in the script department for those shows, and I learned and watched rehearsals for uh, the radio presentation, their technique and how they acted well, amongst each other as professionals. I was exposed to the best. Like I tell people, it was a master's class in the, in the theater and films and radio, you know. And I even, uh, Mr. Desco, who was head of the human resources uh, department, there was a rule she indicated when I was hired, I was the first hire, uh, and so therefore she said, you cannot audition for any of the shows. Naturally, Michael came to audition for the show, one of the radio shows, and uh, Beloved, I think, or and, uh, what the show was called. And I got one of the episodes as the main narrator for the episode. I was hired, but they, the director didn't know that I was uh, part of this CBS family. And once they... Funny. It was found out that I was hired and I was on the radio. I was dismissed. I knew oh. the rules, but I it was something that I wanted to do, and I and I and I did. Cahill Gibran, they're called the beloved, or whatever the, the one of the stories was, and it was a wonderful thing. And I uh, went through the the machinations of of rehearsals, and you know the stars were there and the thing, but they they loved what I did as a narrator of the show, and. Uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. But I learned something from that. But Miss Tedesco introduced me to a friend of hers, his name was Samuel uh, Heiliger, who was a psychic. And and that's how I, and he, he was also the foster brother, who was a black psychic, who was a foster brother of Mary Pickford. And that's how I got to know Mary Pickford. And she came oh to goodness. one of the psychic readings and uh, Dr. Heiliger, and he says, I want you to meet Michael St. John. And, I said, and uh, she, he says, he told her a little about me. She immediately uh, got close to me, and, and she says, call me tomorrow, and we'll talk about something. I, have, I think something that, you know, I have something in mind that you might be interested in being a part of. And yeah. so that's how I got to Mary, got to know Mary Pickford and the, and the famous Hollywood clan, you know. So what was what was I, the first? Because uh, you you talked about your scripts. I guess your first script was sold to CBS. In the script department, I was uh, part of the writing for many of the shows. At that time, radio mm-hmm. they had a committee or or region mm-hmm. of writers, and they shot mm-hmm. because I was very young from USC, and uh, they, it was like that kind of I know uh, situation with the university. And so I was one of the lucky ones, you know, but I was the first black to have there, you know. So, you know, and it was, it was an extraordinary thing because radio, I, I grew up with radio, so that's why I was fascinated, interested, you know, and uh, I was aware of, you know, after all, all the famous people were on radio, Mary Martin had her show in the old mm-hmm. days, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the famous people, uh, Burns and Allen, Gracie Allen, and, and, uh, and uh, George Burns, I had met them, they came to see me a couple of times when I did uh, the desk set for Shirley Booth had gotten an Oscar for Come Back Little Sheba. I mean, I got a chance to meet all those people as well, you mm-hmm. know, because of radio. I knew them, you know, couldn't help it, you know, because that's what, that was the extent of our entertainment, you know, during the, the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, the 40s, you know. It was an extraordinary opportunity 
opportunity for me to really uh, watch and observe. But it was like a class, I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Whatever they did, yeah. and they, I, I watched every move they made. Even, you know, when they left the room, I watched how they left it. Or when I went to concerts or, or uh, private showings, I watched how they uh, carried themselves and how they welcomed other people, how, how open they were with their fans, you know. It was wonderful. You know, they never. I never felt that one was felt was so full of themselves that they they ignored a fan or a person who admired them, etc. Mm-hmm. And that was a brutal lesson to learn because so many kids today they have one hit or one big success and you can they have guards around them. Betty Davis never had a guard around her. Joan Crawford never had a guard around her. I mean mm-hmm. Jimmy Cagney, and uh, you know not, they didn't have guards and people. You know, things like that. So and, and, but after all, when they fade away, they wonder why people don't really are, they lose interest in them. And the aura of Betty Davis or Joan Crawford or Jimmy Cagney or Clark Gable or any of these people, people still talk about them. They regard, have intense regard for them and who they were. Uh-huh. They may not have been the greatest actors in the world, but you have a love for them, you know, and, uh, and, a, and a kind of, uh, you know, uh, of worship that anybody who's achieved anything. Uh, affects other people who have dreamed as well. You know what I mean? It's, it's extraordinary how you learn and how that it, it, it adds is. a dimension to your own life. It really is. Yeah, it, it, yeah, if you allow yourself to dream whatever it is that you want to dream and then decide that you're going to go for it, even though you don't know what the steps are, it's amazing how everything starts to open up and then you look for the opportunities and sure enough, then that mentor will show up exactly at the right time, at the right place with the right people to instruct you, and you'll know the instructions that you're going to need to take. And, um, and then yes. you start connecting the dots. It's almost like an energy that, that is carrying you. And, and quote-unquote bad things or ne- things that you perceive that are negative that happen to you, yes. in hindsight, you'll see that they weren't, you know, they may have been bad, but they redirected you so that you kept on track to where you were supposed to go like in your case, when you uh, were in Indiana, you had that firebomb fire go through your dorm. You know, uh, it directed you to L.A. because yes. that's where you were supposed to be. Had you not had that firebomb, you would have you would have stayed in Indiana. You probably would have not gone into entertainment and had not had the degree of success that you had. Consequently, absolutely. And like you say, one should have negative the negative in, in one's life. Mm-hmm. Because how in the world can you appreciate achieving and the feeling the good rays of, of, of a success or accomplishment that you really worked for unless you understand also the negative aspect? The negative, you have yeah. a greater uh, respect for what you achieve when you are able to rise above the darkness. You know That's why yeah. when it's dark at night, you settle with it, you go with it, you survive it. But when you see the daylight coming over into the window, it's, oh, it's enlightened. It's, it's, you're, you have awesome. to take on a different energy. I, 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 you know that Absolutely. energy that's so exciting? You know? Yes. You know, and you and I share something in common because I didn't realize that you went to my alma mater to USC. I went to USC as well. Did, did, when did you go? I went, I was there from 84 to 87. <laughs> Your your baby, your baby. <laughs> I, I was, I was there. Then. Yeah, you're, you're you're a young little girl, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so I was there in the in the late '80s, 
And um, it's so funny because when I went to SC, you know, I had yeah. always dreamed of, you know, singing and dancing and playing piano and flute and guitar yeah. ever since I was three years yeah. old. But I didn't yeah. think that I could, you know, do it as a living or, you know, and my passion yeah. has always been interviewing people. And so right. when uh, I went to SC, of course, you know, I've always had this thing about healing also. So I wanted to be a doctor. So I was pre-med biological yeah. sciences. But Interestingly enough, God has a funny sense of humor, and he knows better than us. So guess what? My roommate, who to this day is my very best friend, was a journalism and filmic writing major. So I hung out with her and all the filmic writing and cinema students. So they Uh would cast me. They would use me for voiceovers. I was an actress in a lot of the films. And so I was in that entire group of people, even though here I'm studying bio and chem, you know, for – for medicine, but all my time that wasn't in the classroom was spent with all the filmic writing students, either being casted, you know, either for voiceovers or for interviews or for acting. Yeah. And all right. those friends, you know, now many of them have won Grammys and Oscars and Tonys. Yes, and, yes. And you name exactly. It. Um, so when it came the time for me to, uh, you know, jump into entertainment, which was literally two decades after I graduated from from college, um, right. it, it happened almost effortlessly, but I allowed myself, I, I, I uh, had that thing where I was helping one of my friends who had been a friend since the days of SC to get one of his entertainment projects off, off the ground, and I said, you know, you keep on the creative side, you keep writing um, and keep um, illustrating, and I'll make sure that this gets made into a cartoon series, I'll do the merchandise, I knew how to do all the business side of it. And right. that's what got me in entertainment, and the rest is history. Then everybody started throwing my name in the hat. Oh, you need to do this project. You need it, the who's who started coming out of the woodwork. And I'm like, what? I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just getting started. You know, I'm not getting started in business, but I'm just getting started in entertainment. And all the doors started to swing wide open. It was just crazy. It's still, to me, it's still incredible how stuff still continues to happen. Oh, I found that SC was the, the open gate for my whole life because I mm-hmm. saw the world yeah, the opportunity. And I tell people, I said, even the 50s, I said, it, it showed me that I could really achieve. And I met mm-hmm. people, like you say, that really did my opening the door. I loved mm-hmm. SC. SC was my salvation. I, I mean, and I was in the marching band, and it was wonderful being a part of a, a musical community, a band that I had so much in common with, and we would share uh, dreams, and, and we would travel together, you know, to the different uh, challenging uh, uh, colleges and universities. It was wonderful, you know. I loved SC, and I missed it so much, you know. And, uh, that, yeah. and I'm, so glad, I'm so glad that we are a family, you and I, because you understand what yes. I Part of the Trojan, yeah, part of the Trojan family. Oh, yeah. In fact, oh, yeah. In fact, I'd like to take you back to because sometimes I speak at SC. They, you know, they have alumni come back and you know to help uh, not only mentor but on speaking panels. But I'd love to have you go. uh, We can go back arm in arm and talk about you know some of the nuances of the business because that's something that the younger generation that's up and coming. You know, they have all yep. this zeal, all this fire and passion and creativity. Yep. And some of yep. them have hesitancy about, you know, it's like, okay, when I graduate from here, how am I actually going to, you know, pull the trigger and actually, you know, it's kind of like you're taking a leap of faith. And I think encouraging and letting them know that, you know what, no matter what happens, 
No experience is wasted. Um, there are people that are out there that want to, you know, you, you, you just have to reach out and put your hand out and we'll give you a hand hand in to opening a door, introducing you to somebody, making you a part of a project that's already in place, because that was done yes. for us. Yeah, exactly. And this is the one reason why when I, uh, we're working so hard for my book, based, you know, you have mini series or film or whatever, based on my book, Hollywood Through the Back Door. I know yes. people, yeah, and people said, Michael, this should be a, a story. It's inspirational. It is. And it's, I said, I understand all that because it involves so many people. Yeah, the, the main character is, is a sunny character. I said, but he is so typical of so millions of other young people, men, yes. like girls and guys, you know, have dreams. And they sometimes don't know which way they they turn. I said I made some bad moves. Yes, I did some other things that weren't kosher. But uh, and that's what life is all about. I suppose here I am still moving ahead. You know, I'm still composing. I'm still writing. I'm doing a column. I'm doing everything that keeps me thinking and and creating and meeting people and giving people hope because that's what life is all about. Is hope. And it makes it easier to wake up in the morning and say, okay, what can I do today to make it real? To make it right to be here. You know, you have to pay for it. It's a dues you have to pay as a human being. You can't just wake up yeah. in existence for the darkness and do the same thing all over again every day. That's a waste of time. You know? Absolutely. Make something of the moment. You know? Yes. And, you know, we only live once. This isn't a dress rehearsal. It's better to, to yeah. trip and fall uh, forward dancing with success in pursuit of success yeah. than to to flip-flop and never, you know, miss a step and never trip, but and, you know, you're always on stable ground, but then you never succeed. It's like, you know, how unsatisfying can that be? It's better to, you know, yeah. you know, jump up on your yeah. feet and, uh, you know, like I said, uh, dance with success. And if you trip here and there, so what? You get up and yeah, you go again. You'll heal. You'll heal. Like when I saw, the first time I saw the film, The Red Shoes, you know, the great uh, Bollywood Reno who was born in her mind to be a dancer, and this is the way she chose to die, frankly. Amara Shear, I think her, her name was, an English film. And I was so deeply affected by this film called The Red Shoes that it affected my whole life. Because no matter what, she couldn't... Because there was a question that one of her auditioners asked, and he asked, he says, why do you want to dance? She says, why do you want to live? And to me, that was the mm. answer. And guess what? When I was asked by a director at Hedgerow Theater in, back in Pennsylvania, it was raining and it was storming and lightning, which I'm terribly afraid of. But I got to the audition and I sat in the Hedgerow Theater uh, for Yeah, and he was interviewing me because I was soaking wet and he, was, he seated me by the fireplace there. And he looked at me, Jasper Dieter, the famous director, he directed the Barry Moores and everybody else. He asked me, young man, why do you hunt <laughs> to be an actor? And I remembered the line in the movie. That's just why you want to live. And he laughed. <laughs> wow. We had seen the movie, too. We had seen the movie, mm-hmm. too. But it was my way of expressing my feelings. And he says, mm-hmm. you're hired. You can do the role. So that's how I got one of my first roles back in Pennsylvania. And it was called The Adamsy. The Adamsy. I was one of the dancer actors in the, in the play. And uh, it was quite a lot of actors from Philadelphia and New York came to, and appeared in, this, in the play as well. And I... And it was another opportunity, especially at that time, to serve the professionals and to learn something as well. You know, it was wonderful. You know, I've really, I've been so lucky and fortunate to meet people like you and so many other people uh, during my life. 
that I'm still in a classroom, learning, listening, and making mm-hmm. what I hear uh, a part of my my being, of my id, of my center. Mm-hmm. And this, this mm-hmm. and it helps me to really breathe easier at the end of, during the day and end up feeling peaceful when I try to sleep at night. So, what is your next the next project that you're work on working on that you're most excited about? Uh, Hollywood through the back door is a, a mini series because I have so many Hollywood actors who, and you know, it, it will include the Marilyn Monroe's and people that I met, uh, you know, and the Betty Davises, uh, experiences I've had in wow. Rio, in Brazil, and when I was the first public relations director at 20th Century Fox, I went to uh, Taiwan, Steve McQueen, moved to Sam Bettle. Uh, I mean, I had so many opportunities. You know, I was a uh, casting director uh, for uh, a medical center for at MGM to give me an opportunity to that. I was always the first, you know. So there must be a reason why this happened, uh, happened really, because I've mm-hmm. always been the first of, of a black person of my color uh, to get these opportunities. I always try to make wow. the most of them, you know, to learn from them, but open doors. I don't want to feel so happy and so safe that I don't want to open doors for other people. There's so many of our black people, they get these positions, they become queens and kings, and they close the door to people who are just as talented as they are and are afraid of losing some sort of prestige or some sort of personal uh, power, know them or refuse to even see some of these people. And I've experienced some of this action, and I will never forget them. I could never be like that. And I bring it up. I don't give a damn whether they like it or not, you know. And you never get too big to help somebody else, you know. As a matter of fact, you become bigger in a way that you don't even see. If you're if you wow. are uh, if you are able to open a door to somebody else to suggest something to help somebody else, because I mean, it makes me feel good if I can get somebody in a role or as a director or or help them with their project, or whatever. It makes me feel good that yeah, I was able to do that, and that shows you shows that improves that you did have enough respect by other people to trust your opinion. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. terribly important. That's, that's tantamount to power and success in, in itself. Do you think, uh, and we're going to close with this last question, do you think that some of the adversity that you faced in childhood, uh, the abuse, you had you know, a terribly abusive um, upbringing, do you think that that uh, level of pain that you had to face and challenge made it easier for you uh, when when you had to do things and put a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and a lot of drive, do you think that that, relatively speaking, became easy because in comparison to have to survive the kind of horrific abuse that you had, that's like almost like death. So to have yeah. to push and, you know, um, you know, strive in business, you know, that's more pleasant. So rejection, big deal. You know, you've, you've, Right. Practically, you know, face death in the eye. Do you think that that uh, is a true statement? Oh yes, I, I, because of my experience growing up, I could handle anything in the world. At the moment, I was a little devastating, but I quickly empty. I was so, I got so used to uh, pain and disappointment and uh, feeling disturbed emotionally and somewhat uh, confused on many levels uh, that uh, I. I didn't let it take hold of my whole, my entire being as to what I would, how I would handle things. Okay, this is a situation, you know. It hurts, yes, but I've got to get to push more buttons to lightness. And eventually it, it wavers. There's the disappointment. And you say, well, okay, mm-hmm. there's something else. I can put it as an, another note in my book. 
their notebook mm-hmm. as far as uh, surviving in the world. Where, then I have to remind myself that my mother had to go through hell as well, and she survived with them yeah. eight uh, kids, you know, and I was the oldest, so therefore uh, I had I watched her survival and how she would survive a fighting a fight and her blood or her bruises or whatever, but she would get up the next day and continue her dreams. And I said, wow. Mom could do that. I'm not going to sit here and, and bask in my pain and my disappointment, get my ass up and do something about it. You know, wow. There's no, gave you resolve. there's no reason why. Exactly. Because not addressing something, if they're facing something, it doesn't cure it. You know? That's why you go to, if you have a pain, if you suspect it might be more serious, see a doctor or, or a professional person, you do something about it to see if you can circumvent it. What can I do and to, to, to keep alive? to keep my, my, my physicality active or kinetic. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. you must determine, you know. Life is a challenge, and you realize that yeah. uh, uh, very soon, especially if you're not lucky enough. And then even those who are very fortunate with, who, who are born into wealth, they still have a bigger challenge because they don't know who their friends are. They don't know who is after well. them for themselves or or for whatever. So therefore, they have to take chances and look honestly and, and screen honestly into the eyes and the soul of those they deal with and face that, that the, the reality that no one's perfect. Everybody has a dream, has a goal and an objective. If you yeah. see them realistically, you don't have to you don't have to face them on it. No, but you have to understand them and know them. And, give, and it's a kind of sympathy or empathy to say, hey, they're just humans like anybody else and they can make mistakes, as long as I know they're capable of this, that's where a level of respect uh, germinates, and that way we can work together. So that we're all in the same boat. We just got to realize and understand the kind of paddle we must use to make it uh, interesting and, and, uh, and uh, useful to others around us. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is so true. We're all in the same boat. Life is a challenge. Um, no one gets off the surf scot-free where everything is, you know, a bed of roses. Yeah. You know, uh, thinking that somebody has it easier because they were born into wealth or because they yeah. were born into fame, th- that is yeah. that is a freaking nightmare. And you've seen it firsthand because you've been close to people who were born into fame and into wealth yeah. or um, had it, you know, as adults. And it's not everything. It's not It's not the end-all, be-all. So everybody hey, has yeah. it crossed the bear. And we're all supposed to figure it out and go for what it is that we really want and overcome so that we can have that dream that we thought was impossible and be fulfilled. Absolutely. So, Michael, well, we are at the top of the hour here. I, um, okay. It's been so fun having you on this show, and I really do want to have you back on again because I know that there's a lot that we weren't able to cover <laughs> Uh, the show right. went by rather quickly, but um, you do have to promise coming back again. We'll have you on uh, soon, hopefully in the next couple months, so that you can. We'll do a part two, so that we can continue and kind of um, learn a little bit more about your history, which we don't want to keep as a mystery, and right. uh, so that we educate, encourage, and empower others. Right, right. Well, anything for you, Lillian, because this has oh. been a wonderful. Uh, this has been a wonderful day for me to speak with someone of my USC family, and because yeah, I know you understand, so and that means you be more than you can possibly know, and uh, or realize. Yeah. Uh, it's like coming home, because I know yeah. I can speak honestly and freely, and yeah. uh, you understand it because you were exposed to similar uh, uh, things as I, as yeah. far as 
uh, people who have and fortunate enough to be able to follow through with their dreams because of, the, of support, you know, then that means, Absolutely. as you know, means so much. So, well, thank you, my friend. This is the Bottom Line yes. Show Live. We are honored and graced to have you with us today, and uh, thank you again, and you have a fantastic and beautiful rest of the day. Thank you so much. Oh, Lillian, how is yes. it possible to do a copy of this? We will make sure uh, that not only our listeners, but you'll get a copy of this. We will be sending it to you direct. We'll also be posting it on Facebook and the other social media sites like tw- Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, G+, etc., Tumblr. Okay. Okay, for some people have been, asking, oh, have been asking me about that, and we want to take advantage of it, and uh, I appreciate your support as well. You're welcome. Fantastic. Okay. Peace and love always. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye.